Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hello and welcome to Tell Me How You Did It. I'm Namrata Zakaria and I'm here to bring to you my handpicked list of some of India's finest brands. Yes, our best homegrown companies that can compete with the world's best and still win the battle hands down. These companies range from food, fashion and film to home, art and design. I'm only too happy to talk to the founders who not only chased their rainbows, they also made India proud. Make sure you tune in at hdsmartcast.com week after week to shake the hands that built our best businesses. Listen to them tell me how they did it. There's no denying that India is known for some of the finest hotels in the world. When we speak of heritage hotels, we speak of spaces of historical importance that have been lovingly restored to their lost glory and turned into immersive cultural experiences. There's none better than the Nimrana Hotels Group that has revitalized around 30 properties across India for almost 30 years now. These are palaces, forts, havelis and bungalows, each one unique to the town it sits in and the community that surrounds it. My guest today is Aman Nath, founder and director of the Nimrana Group and one of the country's best-known storytellers. Mr. Nath, hello and welcome to tell me how you did it. I'm so happy to have you on my podcast. I'm delighted to have such an elegant host. Yes. Thank Hostess. you. Hostess. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Let me begin by asking you about who you were all those decades ago when you were a young author and a historian and among the founders of Intac. What were your ambitions? What were your dreams like at the time? Oh, the truth is that I've always lived in the present. So when people ask you who are your role models, you know what do you want to become i've always wanted to be myself so i've always lived in today and i am hugely excited by challenges i'm not you know the the one job one wife one child one television one house kind of person i i want to be mm, excessive in everything or very austere in other things you know so that what makes me different you know many of my jain friends say for example that you are more of a jain than us because you don't drink you abstain from this that and the other and they all hide and break rules so i said no one shouldn't hide and break rules really because you know who's watching this whole thing about god and morals and all this so you must live it out So if you have a dream which I've always had as a child every vacation we went to because we would do very long vacations in the summer we would do driving vacations and I'm talking of the 50s I was born in 1950 and I remember vacations from 1955 actually we would rent houses which if you now look back people would call haunted houses in the middle of nowhere and you know set ascend uh you know servants with trunks with quilts set up house so it was the best childhood i could have it was not a childhood of uh, excess it was uh, it was a childhood of plenty or uh, of plenitude at least of lots of love 
uh, lots of comfort, uh, lots of safety. So when I say to somebody, you know, I'm going up on the hill and sleeping in that ruin, they all say to me, aren't you scared of snakes? Aren't you scared of ghosts? I'm actually scared of nothing. And I say to them that uh, there's no bigger ghost than a living man, really. You know, because we go everywhere in the world and create havoc. And if you let everybody be, even if you sleep in a jungle, why would a snake come to bite you? You know, mosquitoes is different. I don't like mosquitoes. <laughs> but, uh, no, because they, they, they trouble your sleep. But I don't sleep with any fear. And I've slept in the strangest places. It's not the image people have of me. They think of me as an art person, as somebody who's very suave and sophisticated. But it's that's that's not really the truth. You know, I'm somebody who's very much a physical person also. So uh, something people don't know. I love racing the car, you know, I mean, and I, I drive so fast that people say, God, aren't you, you should have been dead by now the way you drive. But I drive safely and I, I have no patience with people who are... Um, Bad drivers, you know, the, the fast lane, they drive slow. In the middle lane, they do. Bombay is a is a pleasure to drive, better than Delhi, because in Delhi, I think people are graduating from the village to the city <laughs> and from the scooter to the car. So, you know, everybody's in transition on the road and you can see it. Yeah, okay, sorry, I, can't, I digress. I, no, I can't mm. suffer bad driving at all, but I have no courage to go and stay in a ruin or an empty haveli. You know, yeah. ironically, the first palace I stayed in as a child was at Bhavnagar. Yes. It was, I think it was called the Nilambak Palace. Yes, yes, yes. I know uh, it. Do you? Lovely. And it was an absolute ruin when I was a child. And, and my father had a factory there. And I think it was a treat because it was a very fancy schmancy hotel. And I was terrified of, of ghosts. I have no idea yes. why palaces reminded us of ghosts. So no, when they've you never reminded me of ghosts. They never, you know. So when, I'll tell you a little a short story, actually, which you'll enjoy. That when Neem Rana was being restored, um, you know, I had got it with two friends, um, and Lekha Podar and Op Jain, and you know, they, they they were busy doing other things also. Lekha was raising children. She she was wife of uh, you know of a wealthy Marwari, uh, you know, and. A, born a birla so she was not expected to go running around and do uh, things which are um, i mean not expected of ladies of her stature etc but we made her do a lot of adventurous things too but when 75 people were working for us at neemrana we had rented havelis downstairs and um, they would stay there so i said to them now we've got this huge fort We've got water up. We've got electricity up. There are some rooms ready. There are halls and halls. Why are we wasting this money? So come and sleep up. And they said, there goes, there goes. So I, so I said, I will go and sleep. So I drove up in a gypsy, parked my car. I brought a um, breakfast, you know, et cetera, for the next day because there was no kitchen at that point. And they all said bye-bye to me at sunset like it was the last time we were going to meet, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, there were so they they described ghosts to me. So what happened was that, and the night suddenly I woke up. There was a racket, and what had happened was that somebody from the village had said, "But you'll wake up and you will have to drink milk." So they'd given me a glass of milk in a stainless glass, and I'd kept it on the windowsill. What I didn't realize was that a cat could come walking on the ledge, and it it jumped in and it dropped the glass. So that so I I just got up. 
uh, you know, I lit a torch and saw it was a cat. The cat saw me and ran away and I went back to sleep, you know, and that that's it. There were no ghosts. No. This is no ghosts. this is in 1977, I presume, when you discovered the Nimrana no, no, Fort. No, 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 no. 1977 was when that Shekhawati book was happening. This is uh, 86 when okay. it was bought, and I or 86 or 87 it must have been because you know a certain amount of cleaning and all had been done. But what did happen was, you know, when you raise a large wall anywhere it was on top of a hill let's say and have little openings in it because the windows had been stolen or sold so the wind hits that wall and then it's sucked in so actually it made noises like woo, loud noises like this so if you are the scared sort you'll know there's a ghost you know but there is no ghost so next morning they said you're very courageous I said, no, no, I can't believe that I'm equal to 75 Rajasthanis, you know, and I am a city person and you're from the village. So I said, you'll come and sleep up here. And then they were muttering ghost, ghost. So I said, whoever will catch a ghost will get one lakh rupees. So in 86, a lakh was more like a crore would be today. They said, no, really? So I said, absolutely. But I don't want descriptions of a ghost. I want you to have caught the ghost and then I will see it and you will be rewarded. So that was the first incentive for them to come up. I love this I story. Me. I absolutely love the story. <laughs> looks like it's, you know, like the real past, but it was 36 years or go or whenever. Yes. So you obviously famously restored Nimrana, named your company after the area. And this is where the idea of conservation and restoration came to you when you first set eyes on it. No, actually, it began before. Uh, what happened was that uh, Francis Vaxia, uh, my partner, you know, we, we wrote a book. I went to a, a strange area called Shekhavati, where all the Havelis were painted. And I came back and I told Francis that it was a fascinating area. He was then, um, he had just opened the BNP office in Delhi. After being the assistant trade commissioner in Bombay, he was in love with India and he, he, he said he would do any job to remain in India. So he had come as a journalist for, for a left magazine and traveled with the Nambudri in uh, uh, Kerala and in Pondicherry and all where the, you know, the communists were roaming and uh, propagating uh, voting for them. But um, he realized that he was actually, you know, Perhaps an Indian in his previous life, you know, many French people say these things. The mother also, the mother of Pondicherry had a similar ideas. I think that we are ancient civilizations and we are not insecure like some of the new nations are. They might have money, but they don't have roots. So they're always, um, you know, they can be shaken, they can fall. Uh, but cultures like the French, um, the Indian... Uh, we, we are very much at ease and you'll find that even though you don't speak the language, I didn't speak French, you know, when I first met Francis, that there was a great uh, cultural and civilizational ease with, with Europeans, I would say, generally, but more with uh, the French, the Italians, the Latin people than the Scandinavians, if I might say. So... Um, he wanted to make a film, and I was and I, I was not at all into cinema. Uh, so uh, then we d made pictures, and it became a book. But we, we spent uh, five years roaming every weekend, photographing every Haveli. And after that book came out, 
We spent a lot of time with the Marwari community, first in Calcutta, then in Bombay, lecturing to them and telling them that they should restore their houses. And the curious thing was that although they were the richest community of India, um, actually there was a book written by an author called Timberg, an American scholar. The, that book is uh, old, uh, maybe a little older than when uh, uh, Rana was bought. And he said 60% of the assets in the modern sector of the Indian economy belong to the Marwari community. They've since been overtaken because, you know, then you have a cycle of decadence when a lot of money comes, the next generations don't go out and kill and work as hard mm -hmm. and there's stagnation. But at that point they were. But, but each Haveli, whether it was the Birla Haveli or the Podar Haveli or, you know, Kanoria, Chaucharya, the whole works, they all came from this region. But they had over the generations got so many cousins and country cousins that there was no real owner of the property. So if you wanted to restore something, um, you had to ask 140 cousins. And uh, the poor ones uh, didn't like the idea that the rich one could buy them out because, you know, they weren't on the road, really. So they didn't want to restore. And they behaved in a way like the government of India, you know. We won't do it, but we won't let you do it, you know. So that was the fate of Shekhawati. So then I said that why are we wasting our life telling the richest people in India to restore their ancestral houses? We have nothing to do with that, you know. So I I found one Haveli, a very beautiful Haveli, near Delhi, bought it and restored it. That was Bipri Nimrana. And that was my um, school or a learning process. I realized how easy it was, you know, to do plumbing, wiring, you know, restore uh, roofs which have fallen down, but not have um, to build it from scratch. So great architects came there to see in that work. There was Raj Reval, there was uh, Ram Sharma, there was uh, even Charles Correa. And, and they, you know, they calculated that the volume of stone used in that Haveli was about 10 lakh rupees, but I'd bought it for 30,000 rupees. So nobody could make sense of why I had bought it. I didn't buy it as an investment. I didn't say, oh, what a steal. I just wanted to live in it. And I thought I'd write books in it. But I never so, did. So, Mimrana, how did you begin conserving it and restoring it? No, so after this happened, then uh, I saw Nimrana, you know, I was driving back from Jaipur with Francis and we saw it on the hill. And uh, I turned the car and went up and saw it, fell in love with it. And Francis was very skeptical uh, because, you know, it's gigantic. And later, uh, a banker from the New Zealand calculated that uh, Nimrana was 4,500 times bigger than that Haveli that I had restored. But as I said, I like challenges and I live in the present and nothing is too daunting for me because I had seen my father because I was born post-partition, you know, he was well born. And uh, the difference with uh, Punjabi families who, you know, kind of took over Delhi because there were six million refugees or whatever, was that they never lived in their past. I never heard, you know, when we used to ask questions from our grandmother or from our, our grandparents or our parents, 
they would never describe a big house, you know, which had horses. My father and his brother were all India champions of badminton. So they had a badminton court. They had, you know, sports thing at the back. It was like a big bungalow. But they, they lived in the present. If they had a, a small house which we had rented, that was our life. And we, we lived in that area between the present and yesterday and the future. Because if you work every day, people say these things, but we know we lived it. If you work today hard enough, then tomorrow has to be better. You yeah. can't live in the past and just sit around and say, we had horses, we had cars, yeah. we had this, you know, Queen of England came to our house or whatever the snobberies of people are, you know. So we were very practical people. And as I told you, in my childhood, I slept in the strangest of places without electricity, um, with candlelight and kerosene lamps, had baths, uh, and, you know, had brushed our teeth in frozen rivers in Kashmir. So it, it was a preparation for this. It really was, I think. What does cultural preservation mean to you? Why did you want to restore India's abandoned or then broke heritage properties yes. into like hotels with this sense of history? No, it's a good question. But, you know, it's a question today, 36 years from now. But if you'd asked this to me when I got it, uh, the whole question wouldn't be there because I had not bought it to restore India's heritage. I had not bought it to make a hotel. I just thought it was it was fabulous. I could see a great building uh, which must have had a life. I, I'd studied, I've done my master's in history. So I, I imagined very easily the life within. You know, I, I mean, they, they were imagine for 500 years, if their royal families who've lived there extended it, you know, it dates back to 1464. And then it was extended in, in you know, in the 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, because, you know, and it became a fairly large fort palace. It had five, six wings with forts in it. And the last uh, Raja, Rajinder Singh, who lived there, in fact, his granddaughter was married 10 days ago at Nimrana, as his daughter was also, even after I had bought it, you know. So it, it, it was fun because you realize that life is theater. And this, you know, all the world's a stage when Shakespeare says so. It is a stage because when I drive into that place or sleep there, I, as an Indian, as a, I would say, evolved into Indian, if I, I'm not paying myself a compliment, but saying that India is civilizationally evolved. We have this great sense of detachment, which the other parts of the world don't have. Even a trucker, you know, on, on every highway in every part of India, it says, Saath kya le jaoge? Or soch kar socho, what will you take with you from here? Nothing. So if a truck driver knows that, then the richest industrialists who fight among each other should also know that. But they don't. Because the more we, not evolve, the more we develop, the, the, the less Indian we become. Because our role models, especially for a colonized nation like ours, are uh, totally Western. So if you build a mall, you would get 10 brownie points. And if you restore a Haveli, you would get one. I mean, I'm talking of my time, okay? So in 84, the day Mrs. Gandhi was assassinated, I bought that Haveli for 30,000 rupees. And I remember spending about 
maybe maybe two lakhs by the end of it, you know, over some years. Um, and a man from the village who was watching this happen, who's who's lived on the edge, who was uh, they call them fakirs, bishtis actually. You know those people who carried water in leather pouches. Yeah. Yeah. So he was descendant from them. They were they were traditional bishtis. So he said to me, "Salam, sir." He said, "Can I?" Enter and see the house. I said it's yours because you know there were twenty houses in the village. So he entered. He he roamed around. He came back, and he said something utterly amazing. He said, "Pesa to bahut kharch kara hai, magar show nahi hua." So meaning you spent so much money, but it doesn't show. That is a compliment to somebody who's done restoration, but to a nouveau-rich person. He wants a certificate of I have spent and it's plastered on the walls. He wants you to see that you spent money. So my purpose was not that at all. First, I had no money problem in the wrong sense of the term. I didn't have extra money to blow up. I had a money problem in the the other way because I was saving money to build it. And when I, you know, got lime and 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 got a camel to turn the millstone and so on, I I learned I learned in. a few months the process because you saw the you know the traditional masons doing what they were doing they they said why ma there's a bhatti you know there's a where they slake the lime so we would buy lime then they would bring it i would bring this in my car a few gunny bags it was a great learning process but it's not something you learn in italy where you go to ikram and learn restoration because they are dead civilizations so um since you asked a question on restoration i want to tell you that after this restoration happened and we got people to come all the jet set you know of the world came to this haveli it appeared in architectural digest and uh, uh, sir terence conrad came his sister came you know all the, all the bissels uh, friends came they you know Gerard Depardieu came, you know, the French um, Prime Minister. Anybody would come and say, "We want to go to the Haveli." To go to the Haveli was to be invited to Buckingham Palace or whatever, you know. <laughs> and uh, and I've got pictures of people there. They were in ecstasy. It was so simple. So I knew that already, and not that I needed a reassurance that you know, being simple in India was much more exciting than being. Um, you know terribly rich because people look at you with envy with jealousy movies you know with the with the bad eye but when you are simple and participate with the village and give them jobs or you know we opened a school we brought water yeah that was also a fun story actually you know because when you are at that level after i bought the haveli i go back and i tell this to my father and he says so how's the water there so i said water suppose it would be like water everywhere he said you didn't taste the water i said no so i go back the next week but this is pre you know there were no phones no cell phones and they say oh there's no water in the village so i said how do you live so they said oh it's got brackish water we've done eight wells and this water is brackish so we get it from half a kilometer away so i said bad news you know how was i going to live with brackish water so i said no the first project is then to get water to the village so i get somebody a water diviner who came who was sick but i picked him in a car i said come come you have to help me i who studied you know my masters i belong to an industrial family i studied history in st stephen's college i don't i'm not supposed to believe in water diviners 
Do you? <laughs> no. I mean, no. Would you imagine that an, um, a man can just stand on the ground and with a little stick, which starts bouncing and he says, dig here and there's water. I said, this is all humbug, you know, for illiterate people. But anyway, since I bought the Haveli, I had no option. So I go and get this man. And he was. He said, I've got fever. I said, it doesn't matter. I'll pick you in a car. I'll drop you back. I was driving myself. So he arrived there, gets out of the car and he says, oh God. I said, what happened? He said, I forgot my stick. So I said, uh, but you can take any other stick. He said, no, no, it's a stick. Now, I told him I'd give him 100 rupees, which was a lot of money in those days. So he, now he said the option is to you know, go back and not do this but or pretend to do it or whatever he did. So he, he just looked at the mountain. He looked at the Haveli. He looked left, right, center. He raised his hand half. And then he, then he started walking in one direction. And he said, dig here. So I said, oh, great. So... And I said, suppose brackish water comes because they've dug eight wells. Then he said, okay, if you don't get water, he walked and walked and he walked 50 more steps or 100 more steps. And he said, dig here. There was a little depression. So this is, you know, modern day story. Can you imagine? So we, we, so I get a man with a, you know, diesel something because there was no electricity in the village. So he digs. I come back in the next week and there are people standing there. And they, I say, what happened? He said, brackish water came out. So then I, what, do, what do I say to myself? What would you say to yourself? What a fool. What's the use of all the education? Uh, when, you know, if you get into all this village talk about people. But uh, I had no option. So I, then they said, should we dig the other place? So it was 5,000 rupees, I remember. So you bought a house for 30, a ruin for 30,000. You spent 5,000 on water that doesn't come out. And then you say, okay, spend five more thousand. I think I was in advertising at that point or had I joined my father by then. Anyway, 5,000 was a lot of money. So I said, okay, Dick. And the next week when I went back, there were like 200 people standing there because they knew the time I came. And there was absolute euphoria. And the whole village said to me, you are an extraordinary man. You have brought us sweet water. So I said, oh, wow. I mean, you know, it was just a fluke and it was just, uh, you know, just a half belief in a uh, water diviner, but it had happened. So then I did the piping to this house. Then I, I did a longer pipe to another area where we opened a school. Then we made a, a, a kind of place where the kids could drink water. And after a few months, they phone and they say that all the brass taps have been stolen by the children because they broke them. So they wanted 1,500 rupees. I, so I thought, no, I said, I think they've got it wrong. You know, I'm not a, a tycoon who opens his Elmira and currency notes fall out, you know. So I said to them, I'm sorry, I did those taps for you. If the kids have stolen them, you have to give them a tight slap or the teacher has to teach them that this is public property for you. I live in Delhi. I don't drink that water. So you will have to buy it and you will have to fit the tap and you will have to make it work. And they did. They collected money and after much difficulty. And I did help them again because I wanted to teach them something. And then there was sweet water and there was a total acceptance. Total what acceptance. What an amazing so story. This really is yeah. what you call like a ground report, you know, because we talk about history and culture and art and you know, preservation, but this story really is like what it's like it's on India. the ground. It's, a, it's, an, of course. It's, a, it's an Indian story, you know. And then there are many more. And then House and Garden came to photograph it because, you know, I don't know how the fame spread to House and Garden. They did an India issue. 
And you'd laugh if I tell you that it was in India issue. They did three three homes. One was Rashtrapati Bhavan, which is the house of the president. The second was Biki Oberoi's farmhouse, you know, which was, you know, all done by some foreign architect and was very chic and contemporary, far beyond our imagination at that time. And the third was this Haveli, you know, and it says the world's most beautiful houses. So I laughed, you know, that here you can buy a ruin for 30,000. It was very beautifully located, I must say. You know, it's, it's, it's in a kind of horseshoe of the Aravalis, and the Aravalis are the world's oldest fold mountains, which date back to two billion years. So there are extraordinary rock formations there. Wow. And because the Haveli had fallen a bit, you know, one side had fallen, I decided not to build it. I built it up to 10 feet so that people wouldn't walk in or cattle wouldn't. And I put two um, halogen lights on it. So at night, when, you know, if we sat outside and had dinner on a table, that whole mountain was lit. So of course, it was magical, but it was all minimal, not because I was trying to emulate Scandinavia. It was minimal because the pocket was small and because one understood the aesthetic of less as more, you know, and which is something which Indians should understand, you know. So I once was talking to 700 architecture students. The joke is they call me to talk in architecture colleges. In fact, I'm going to Lucknow in a few days. And I keep telling them I'm not an architect. So they said what the Aga Khan Foundation said, that you're not an architect, but your work merits it. So, you know, one got some certificate, etc., whatever from them. But I tell them this. I said, we come from a country where less is valued as more. So why are we in that race, you know, to say now we are making a five star, now we're making a seven star, we're making a super luxury because we, we should have no complexes, you know. I think we need to do very simple hotels, you know. I, I, I picture a hotel, which I haven't done yet because I haven't found the right place. I picture bed sheets like Mother Teresa's sari, you know, khadi bed sheets with blue lines and... Um, and, and absolute simplicity, because white can be washed, can be bleached, you know, and it's clean and you know it's clean. So that people come into India in the inner space, which is not trying so hard to be to outdo the West. I want to ask yes. you about your, your friendship with the French diplomat, Francis yes. Baxiar, and, and, and what were his contributions to the Nimrana properties? Are they 18 now? Am I right? Are they 18? No, no, we we ran 27 hotels, but uh, then we, we closed a few. I'll tell you, the ones in Gujarat that didn't do well, we gave back Patodi to Saif and Saif. Karina because they asked yeah. us, uh, you know, they said we got married now. If, it, if we had 11 more years, then we'll be middle-aged when we get it. So we gave that back. So we reduced the number in places where, people, where they didn't do well because we don't have funds to sustain it. No, Francis was, uh, uh, for a start, um, well, that is a joke, but I, I will tell it to you since you asked. Mm. <laughs> I have a twin brother, and my twin brother doesn't look like me. And w- when I met Francis, the first time I told him, you look like my twin brother, he said he thought I was joking, you know. And when he actually met my twin brother, and one day my father had an Austrian um, industrialist to dinner because, you know, we, we were working in machinery between Austria and India and it was a bit dark and he came out to see the gentleman to the gate and Francis was walking in 
and with me. And he said, oh, let me introduce you to my sons. These are my twins. So I said, Daddy, this is Francis. So he laughed, you know. So that means that, I mean, they, was, they looked so much alike. It's strange. So that, that's how it began. And, and my twin brother is exact opposite of mine. He's a golfer. He's into robotics. And, uh, you know, it's completely a different person. And Francis was um, in aptitude, uh, very, very much like me. So it was a great pleasure. It was like having, he would have been the triplet really, but it was like finding a twin brother because uh, we thought alike. It's, you know, we, if we went into a place to buy something, for example, whether it's furniture or art or whatever you need for hotels, if we did a round, invariably we would, cho- we would choose the same things, you know. So it's fun, and we had a completely different upbringing. Um, if yes, in, in fact, his upbringing—he he was uh, born of Jewish parents, but uh, it's very, very exciting. The name Vagziar means carder, carderer, or you know, the thre- people who make thread or in uh, weaving um, in in Hebrew. No, in Polish actually, in Polish. Yes. So his father's name was Polish, and his mother was Turkish. Uh, they were, you know, different kinds of Jews, you know, Ashkenazi and Sephardad, whatever. Yeah. And they they met in Paris. They both had French passports. So in, in short, in one sentence, Francis was born of a Polish father and a Turkish mother with French passports on a German ship in Portuguese possession in the Cuban waters. That's now, fantastic. That's, that's fantastic. And then I, I would joke with him and he said, you're absolutely right. I said, therefore, no country can assimilate you except India, you know, because we've had so many invaders, so many visitors, so many, you know, people who, who came and settled here, so many colonizers, you know. So we, we've got the Huns, the Scythians, the Afghans, you know, the Arabs, the, the Portuguese, the Danes, the um, whatever, British, the French, uh, Everybody we had, you know, and and they all became part of India and and they tried to change India. It must have changed a bit, you know, they brought tomatoes and they brought uh, um, coffee and things, but uh, and they mixed in their blood. But we we remained, you know, when you say that that wonderful poem by Iqbal, which says, Kuch baat hai ki hasti mitti nahi hamari, you know, the sare jahan se acha hindustan hamara. So there is something Fabulous. about that. We go on and yeah. on and on. And we are the world's only living civilization. Isn't that staggering to know that people, we are not conscious of it, you know. Every we other so many centuries at one time. You absolutely, know? absolutely. Yeah. And, and parallel time, you know. You, and yeah. it doesn't strike us. You can have an elephant, a bullock cart and a Maserati on the same road, at least in Delhi, you know. And um, it looks all right to us. But foreigners, you know, they say, oh, cow, you know, horse, a donkey or whatever, you know. So I once did a book on the corporate history of the Tatas. And they, uh, there's a great uh, kind of fold, a gate fold in that book of the Howrah Bridge, which was built by Tata Steel, out of Tata Steel. And then I counted that in Kolkata, on that bridge, there were 14 kinds of transport, you know. There were people carrying loads by, you know, hand. There were people on uh, rickshaws, donkeys, whatever, you know, the whole lot. And I've listed them. You can't say that about other countries. And we're at total ease, you know. We live in the past and the present. And the two are harmonious. Tell me from all your properties, which are your favorite and why? 
any places that were particularly challenging or especially fulfilling? You know, it's a um, how does one answer a question? Mm-hmm. Do you have children? <laughs> Just one. So no favorites. He's the only one. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to say if you had seven children, I was hoping you have seven children, then I would say (laughs) which one one is your favorite. No, so actually, it's a bit like that. And I think that the most challenging one, I mean, if parents say, you know, I have a handicap, I mean, if if somebody has, you know, many children, if one has an issue, you know, whether if he's slow or if he's handicapped, you know, then that becomes uh, the favorite for for the right reasons, really, not the wrong reasons. You know, so I think that the uh, the projects that challenge me the most, that tax me the most, I say, and people say it's impossible to do. I wish you would come, come to Tijara, actually, on this uh, on the twenty sixth and seventh, we've got a, a whole a Parsi do happening because uh, Kurshid Nadiman has done a wonderful acrobat sculpture for us. So we get you know an exodus of communities who ha- who take it over and you know it becomes a Parsi thing. We had Kurshid and Keku Gandhi's whole family, the daughters, because we made a Kurshid and um, Keku Mahel because Tijara is has artist rooms. You know every That's room right. is done by an That's artist. Right. There's an Anjali Ila Menon room as well. That was the first to do. Anjali's first exhibition in Delhi was at my house. So she stayed often here. So we're very close. And I've been connected very closely to art. So art, architecture, aesthetics, all these things are one, you know, in a kind of renaissance way. I mean, you you can't say I'm a textile designer, but I don't understand furniture, you know. I think one must carry over into the other. So when... If four people are given a space, somebody who has good taste could hang. Um, if I go back to Mother Teresa sari, you can buy one of those saris, cut it into two, and uh, just put a bamboo above and below, and it'll become two drapes, you know, and do a one blue sofa and a white carpet, and it'll already look like a space which it wasn't, you know, with, with just two props. So I think aesthetics is very important. And... Um, it has been for Nimrana Hotels. So the, the, when people say things like uh, a home away from home, I mean, which is such a cliche, I wondered about the wisdom of that, you know, because would you say I went for a holiday and I went to a place that looked just like home? I mean, why would you go there in the first place? I think they're, they're meaning to say that you feel at home, but you cannot feel at home in a Nimrana place because nobody has a 15th century fort or a 14th century fort as a house. So the view should be different. The floor should be different. The window should open differently. The fans should be different. Everything should be different, which is why it becomes an experience. It can be slightly on the side of... I wouldn't say uncomfortable, but it was slightly on the side of, uh, you know, bewildering, surprising, adbhut. Adbhut is one of the rasas, means strange, you know, and say, oh, how curious, you know, you have a six foot thick wall with a window. So we put a a mattress there. So you open the window and you lie in the length of the window and you read a book. Now, that's a 14th century wall. And that cannot be replicated uh, with 500 crores, you know, in the city of Bombay in an expensive hotel, which is aspiring to be uh, Roman because it uses Italian marble. I don't know what they aspire to be. (laughs) Aspirations have gone wrong, you know, as as a colonized country. They're, They're getting to be right. They're getting to be right, you know. When we were kids, you had to be Western, you know. I got a pair of Levi's jeans. I was the first in my whole circle. And I had uh, 10 feathers in my cap. But then 
during my lifetime, I've seen all that happen. You can wear khadi, you can wear salwar kameez, and ladies particularly, ladies like you, you know, if you went to a banker's party in New York, uh, you could wear black trousers, black coat, smoke a cigarette and an ivory holder, and they'll, they'll think you're a princess, you know, I mean, and you can wear a sari and you can be a princess. So you have both the options, which is not open to every other person, you know. Another so enduring stand. legacy of yours, Mr. Nath, has been that you were part of uh, a group of people who filed a writ petition in the Supreme Court of India, challenging Obviously. Section 377 of the IPC. Obviously, uh, yes. you know, that decrim- that criminalized homosexuality. And, yes. and your petition resulted in the landmark judgment of 2018 that decriminalized it. Thank you, first of all, from all the queers and allies. I'm most certainly an ally, and this is obviously mm. huge. But what did this victory mean for you personally and and even professionally? Because this is legacy, right? This is historical. Yeah. No, for me, actually, it changed nothing. You know, I have always, um, uh, I think that it's important, uh, in India at least, to, to live the way you want to, because society... Had, has never questioned it in the past. It's only the intervention of the Victorian times that people started to say, you can do this, you can't do that, you know. So when you have um, stories of, uh, let's say, Jesuits in, in, you know, and monks, I mean, you know, you have scandals which appear again and again. So why are they being judgmental? Why are you saying I'm celibate and actually you're not and you're pervert? And uh, on the other hand, uh, if... if uh, Nature has made you more creative, um, you know, less dependable on the usual sort of uh, uh, allure uh, of people. Then it's, I don't even consider it um, an aberration or, you know, it, it, it's the way you are. And that's the way you should be. And everybody accepts you. I have never, never in India ever felt discriminated against. People say because you're privileged uh, in society. But... Uh, I think that's that's not all, you know, even mythologically, you know, in Hinduism, we have uh, amazing stories. And I, I I ask people, you know, we have something called Harihara. Harihara is a form of Vishnu and Shiva together. And they make a baby. And that whole controversy which is happening in Kerala, which is uh, about that temple, what is that? Sabri Malai temple. Yeah. That is actually the offspring of Shiva and Vishnu. And it's not um, uh, oriented to be, um, you know, a, a gay temple or something. You know, five lakh people, you know, straight people, normal people go to worship it because it, it, it was actually, I think at that time, seen to be a way to unite uh, two sects of Hinduism. Because Hinduism is is crazy enough to give you so many openings. You can worship anything, you know, you can worship a stone, you can worship a tree, and you're not considered a mad hatter. So then when Shaivism and Vaishnavism sort of set out in two directions madly and started to shoot down each other and saying, if you, the, the Shiv Puran, for example, says, if you worship Vishnu, you'll go to hell. And the Vishnu Puran says the same, if you worship Shiva, you'll go to hell. Some sensible person said, because this doesn't make sense, you know, because actually we only go there to cleanse ourselves, to, you know, whatever you want to transact with your own God in your little space, because Hinduism, you worship one-to-one, not uh, in congregation like Christianity and um, 
Islam and so on. So it's it's a very private in a dark chamber. You, you converse with yourself. You you know you don't have to make confessions loudly in, um, so that other people get to know whatever your problems are. It's a different way of cleansing yourself, of dealing with yourself. And of course, you, you people do sleep with their neighbor, you know, and then they don't jump off the roof. They go to the Ganges and have a bath and they become clean again. because <laughs> you know, No, because it's a mechanism that you have to repair yourself. So I think that the, the, the morality is very open and uh, I think the world accepts it. So... People made a big thing. I was surprised because I got lots of mails from different parts of the world saying, you're a hero, you've done this, that. I have never seen myself like that. I, I, I've said to myself, here is something that has always existed. And if it's existed in a clandestine manner and um, it's now, you know, people cannot be persecuted or, you know, taken advantage of, uh, it's a thing, but I've gone on, you know, to life, but then then people are still fighting whether they should be married and uh, whether, you know, they should have joint accounts, all that. It'll happen. But the first important step happened. And uh, I think it's remarkable that it happened in the time of the BGP government, because, you know, the Congress has always imagined that it was more progressive, more liberal, but why they were not able to deal with this or with the antiquities law and so on. I think that the times have changed, the world has evolved, India has evolved, and uh, so it's a good thing. I don't take much credit. I think that this is just, people have said it needs courage, it needs courage, but I was not, you know, hiding in any closet, you know, it needed no courage for me to say that everybody should live uh, as they want, you know. I mean, people want, if you want to live with your lap dog and you find that that's the best person you can talk to because he doesn't bark back, you know, and or doesn't uh, punish you like a wife or a husband can, then thousands of people are living now with their pets, you know, taking them for shampoos and all that. It's a need. It's, so if you, if, you, if you find the right person or whatever sex they are, you know, or if you want to live in a group of people who you get along with, I think it's... Uh, it's our life, one life, and everybody should have the choice to do what they want. Mr. Nath, wonderful words. Great note to end our fantastic conversation with. I'm so honored you've taken the time out and given it to me, despite a little bit of chasing, which I don't mind at all. It's been wonderful. No, no, I'm, I'm a nomad. I, I, I was not avoiding you. It's just that I'm a nomad. And then once I realized that I had to be in a quiet room, I couldn't be just chatting in a car and all that would have happened much earlier. Yes. <laughs> pleasure to have met you and a pleasure. I hope to meet you again when I'm in Bombay to do another book with For my sure. publisher. For sure. If you enjoyed the show or not, write to me on Instagram, Twitter or Clubhouse at Namrita Sitaria. You can catch the video podcast on the Lifelink channel on YouTube. For updates on Tell Me How You Did It, follow us at HT Smartcast. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Clubhouse. To listen to more podcasts, log on to htsmartcast.com or suno nai nazariye se. This was a Mint production brought to you by HT Smartcast. HT Smartcast.